Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insight podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Stuart Seidel, uh, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, for those, who don't, those of you who don't know you, do you mind introducing yourselves um, to our audience? Hi, I'm Stuart Seidel. I'm an industrial organizational psychologist and a dean at Mercy College uh, in New York, United States. Absolutely. And, and a kind of what, what is your expertise kind of in the area of authority, which is kind of what our mm. uh, episode is about today? Sure. Well, um, as an industrial organizational psychologist, uh, I've studied and, and written about leadership and also helped many managers um, understand the literature and how to apply it as managers. And on, in addition to being an academic, for many years, I've been coaching senior leaders and organizations to help them get to the next level. Right, right. So I guess we today we're going to be talking about, you know, democratic leadership versus autocratic leadership and the different mm -hmm. styles of leadership there are. Uh, but before we go into that, I really wanted to just get to know you a little bit. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. I have a couple of questions for you in our segment called Have You Met mm -hmm. Stuart's Idol? And um, are, you, are you ready? Are you happy to answer them? I'm ready. I'm happy. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. So what is your favorite book? I have so many favorite books, but if we're talking about leadership and coaching, uh, the two books that I seem to use a lot with clients lately is one, a Marshall Goldsmith book called Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts and Becoming the Person You Want to Be. And also, I seem to recommend to a lot of leaders struggling with change, a book called uh, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard by two brothers with the last name Heath. Right, right. And, and do you have a book that you read outside of leadership or the field of leadership? Uh, all the time. It's um, uh, all sorts of, of novels and, and books, but uh, um, I'm not sure what one of my favorite is right now. It all changes with mood and age. Yeah, I guess it's, it's one of those mm -hmm. things. What about mm -hmm. um, a favorite movie? Well, one of my favorite movies, and I'm looking at a poster in my house right now, it's called Sing Singing in the Rain, the classic. Well, uh, when one of my sons was about three, he became obsessed with that movie and would want to watch it over and over again and act it out. So we stood, So that's probably the only movie I've ever really memorized the entire script uh, because he would want to act it out all the time. So it's become a family favorite, uh, Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. Right. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I That's a classic mm -hmm. musical, I feel, that at least everyone mm -hmm. has seen once in their life. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have a podcast uh, that you've been listening to? There's a bunch. I, one that seems to come up a lot for me is Hidden Brain. Are you familiar with Hidden Brain? Um, and it, it's sort of similar to a lot of work I do with managers. Is It's a podcast where uh, the host uh, takes psychological theories and helps people understand how the brain works and how we uh, process information and 
he'll look at different things such as uh, the problems with being too empathic or or how we make mistakes in our judgment. Um, and he actually has a, that's another book I just recently enjoyed. He turned his podcast into a book, and that was an excellent book, uh, which focuses a lot on on our our biases in our thinking. Right. Yeah. Another one to add to the list on top of um, this podcast uh, here. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a famous role model that you've looked up to? A whole bunch for different things. Um, one that comes to mind immediately is Barack Obama, the former president of the United States. I don't think he was a perfect president, uh, but I um, he actually inspired me. The first time I was a serious manager of a of a Department of Psychology, he was running for office and he kept talking about no drama Obama. And so um, I was realizing a challenge with my department at the time was everything was overdramatic. Every, every crisis was turned into an explosion. Every disagreement was that person's head's going to explode. They're going to kill us. And I was realizing, gosh, maybe, maybe I should be more like Obama and reduce the level of drama. You can still be inspirational and charismatic and exciting without being overdramatic. And so from Obama, I took that shift and it got me to sort of think of reducing the own drama in my department and still being exciting and energetic without, um, without using overdramatic language. And that's something that he inspired me to do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think, yeah, he's 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 been quite an inspiration. I think over the past few decades for quite a lot of people. Um, in that respect, um, he manages to mm -hmm. capture a lot of imagination, capture the imagination of a lot of people around the world for sure. Mm -hmm. um, what about the last course that you've completed? Well, so after I did my PhD in industrial organizational psychology, I did a lot of courses, and I still do courses in getting certified in personality assessments because I use personality assessments a lot in my coaching as a, and in my teaching as a first step uh, to help people have data to refer to versus me just uh, telling them what, how they come across. So using 360 feedback tools and personality assessments, I've taken courses in that, but, but really something even better than all the courses I've taken. It's something that almost maybe the universe provides, but it seems like whenever I'm coaching somebody to help them through a problem, I start to realize I'm having a little bit of that problem too. So I kind of feel like uh, each coaching session with a client almost becomes like a course. So it's been almost more powerful in a lot of my courses. I don't usually tell people when I'm coaching them that like, oh, I could be getting along with my boss better too, or, oh, I, um, I could be giving more recognition. And so I start saying, if I only listen to the advice we come up with in these sessions, uh, I'd be doing great. But many times, I don't even think of something as a challenge or an opportunity until, you know, especially happens when a manager or a senior manager or CEO of a company says, I want you to work with this person because they're doing this and it's really stopping them. And then I start talking to them. I'm saying, hmm, um, I'm really learning from from this process, too. Yeah. So that's even that's been some of my most powerful uh, lessons. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like the best kinds are w when you get to teach, but also learning from the people that you're teaching as well is is, is such a rewarding experience. It, it is. It's good. And um, and I've done you know other things in the self help world, like the Landmark Forum. I really enjoyed that many years ago. Yeah. And, th and other programs. Yeah, for sure. And and a, a question that you asked me to ask you right before we started recording uh, was, what's your favorite band? Oh, right, right. 
Um, my favorite band is a new rock band called uh, Robot Monster. You can find them on Robot Monster Music, and it gives me hope because um, rock and roll isn't dead. There's still young people making good rock music, and so I, I recommend going to Robot Monster Music. Yeah, I think rock and roll is making a bit of a comeback at the moment, which is which is great <laughs> for the people who are mm. fans of that um, over the past. Yeah, it's been, and I'm it's related to the drummer. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So, uh, that, that's another reason I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll check it out. Robot Monster. Check it out. <laughs> that's uh-huh, that's sure. a promo. Um, all right. So I guess um, that bring, that brings us to the end of that segment. Um, now that our audience has gotten to know you, let's talk a little bit about our topic for today, um, sure. which is you know, democratic versus autocratic leadership. I, mm. I wanted to start out pretty broadly our podcast is about personal development. Um, mm-hmm. So I just want to ask you, how do you define personal development? Yeah, well, I think personal development is a very important part of a of a leader growing and, and doing well. And personal development is really looking inward and focusing on ways to grow or improve in some areas that are important to who you want to be. And um, it takes self-awareness, and I think that's one of the most important first steps to effective leadership is self-awareness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess what what do you find are the main challenges in personal development? Oh, there's many. Um, so I'll start with what are in people's control because you have the external environment. People would say there's something that's stopping them. But I think within our own selves, there's usually – I would categorize the barriers into two buckets, one being emotional and one being cognitive. So so even if you're in a supportive environment and all the right ingredients are there, you have the best teachers, you have opportunity to do personal development, the way our bodies and minds operate sometimes work against us. So first we'll talk about emotions. So how emotions, emotions get in the way of personal development. Most of us want to avoid negative emotions. And personal development often brings up three negative emotions, one being shame. Maybe people feel too ashamed to be vulnerable or to develop. You know, maybe someone feels like they're so out of shape, they'd be embarrassed to go to the gym or they've done such horrible things in some of their relationships in the workplace that no one will take them seriously or they don't deserve to even try to come across. Maybe they feel like they'd be phony if they were trying to uh, be kind to others or collaborate effectively because they have so much shame about the way they've treated people or somebody in the past. Another negative emotion that people want to avoid is stress. Mm -hmm. And personal development takes time. And many of us, our big stress at work is I have too much time. It's I mean, too much, th- too many things to do. And I need to think about my development when my schedule opens up. And it never usually does. Um, and usually when people are stressed, that's when they need it the most. Um, so they often feel like they don't have the time to do the real job. When do they have time to do personal development? And then finally, a negative emotion that people have around uh, personal development that gets in the way is fear. And it's not fear of success. It's two types of fear. The first fear is a fear of coming across as incompetent. So many of us, especially successful leaders, 
are used to coming across as smart and successful. And to do personal development, you have to try something new where you may not be good. You know, I um, you asked me about courses before. I forgot to tell you, I, I'm taking Spanish courses right now. <laughs> and um, and uh, even though I'm a dean, I'm a professor, uh, over you know 20 years of teaching experience, I've taken very difficult classes, I still can be a nervous student or feel embarrassed you know, I have 26-year-old teachers, and I feel like, ooh, they're going to think I made a mistake in the homework. I'm going to look incompetent. Uh, or the other fear, besides looking incompetent, is many times people fear a change in relationships. Sometimes people feel like if they make a change, that somebody they care about will reject them. You know, no, no longer the cool person. Uh, they're no longer part of the group. So maybe there's a certain group at work. You get and you're going to become develop a certain talent that others will see as, oh, you're joining the dark side. Like for example, in academics, if you want to sort of learn how to be an administrator, your colleagues will say to you, you're joining the dark side. And maybe some people will stop wanting to be your friend because now you're no longer one of the faculty, but you want to be one of the administrators. So that's, so that's, um, that's the emotional side. The other barrier bucket, um, that's a barrier to personal development is the cognitive side. The way our brains are wired works against growth and change. Sometimes um, we um, it's easier for us to operate on automatic pilot. Our attention span is a limited resource and to grow and to learn and do a lot of new things. Uh, it takes a lot of attention. One of the reasons why people fail in personal development is they try to take on more than their attention span can handle. Uh, we tend to prefer to be an automatic pilot. You know, like when you're driving, it's nice when you can just tune out and just drive and listen to the radio and daydream. But if you're driving in bad weather or something like that and something you have to pay attention constantly, it takes a lot more work. Yeah. And doing personal development means you have to pay attention to how you talk, how you're communicating, and all the things that you try to do on automatic pilot. But our sneaky habits, the things ingrained that we do on automatic just pop up even if we don't mean to. So when we're not paying attention, those things that we learned when we were kids are going to come out very strong without any thought. Most of our habits that are even bad habits are so automatic and they, they actually serve us. So the minute you feel stressed, maybe you bite your nails. Or the minute you feel um, stressed, maybe you eat too much. And those don't require a lot of thought. And it takes thought maybe to do the new behavior, but um, the automatic papers just sneak up and they pop out. And we're funny that way. We're wired. That's why sometimes we're so automatic and mindless most of the time, which is much more comfortable than having to be awake and alert. We do funny things. You go to a restaurant and the server will say to you, enjoy your meal. And you say, you too. You didn't mean to say you too, but it just popped out because you're so used to say you're not thinking. But when you're when you have to think and fully engage, that takes attention, that takes work. And we're required we're we're more wired to be an automatic pilot so we don't have to use all our attention, we can get things done. It would take us all day to have an open mind and be constantly learning. So um so we're wired cognitively to resist um change. And I think those are probably two major barriers to personal development. Mm, and I feel I feel like those buckets uh, seem to intersect 
a lot. Like you were talking about, you know, it's easy to be on autopilot. And I feel like that ties a little bit in with stress and how like we go into autopilot because we don't feel like we have the time or energy to spend that time thinking about what we're doing and being present and being aware. I feel, And the idea of needing to spend that time can cause us more stress. It's kind of like a, a cycle that exactly. kind of keeps going. Yeah. Well, being an automatic pilot too, tuning out, sometimes is a great coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, so you don't want to have to face self-awareness or see things you don't want to know. So it's easy just to tune out and be an automatic and and, and not fully engaged. It takes work to really really listen, to question your assumptions, to communicate in a more purposeful way. And eventually those things become habits. But when it's new, it doesn't feel like a habit. It doesn't feel automatic and it takes work and it's a lot more stressful. And when you're stressed, you feel like you already have probably a lot on your mind. You're worried. You're trying to overcome a problem. I don't need to think about communicating perfectly or listening perfectly uh, or whatever the barrier is. So we, the shortcuts can, can help us cope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess, uh, you know, moving on, like, kind of a bit more into our topic for the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 what What is leadership? What, 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 how do you define it? Yeah, well, I, I define it uh, loosely, but basically influencing others toward the achievement of, of organizational goals or a vision. So when I'm talking about leadership, versus management, I'm talking about how are you influencing people towards some broad goal or broad vision. But I don't think any definition is necessarily right or wrong. I think the important thing is to know how people are defining it. So let's say if you read an article on effective leadership, are they talking about influencing people towards goals or being a boss? Are they talking about over the long term or short term? There's so many psychology studies on leadership that take place in a laboratory over one task and they say, see who was the most effective leader. And that's not really effective leadership. That's leader emergence and who emerges as a leader, but that's also very short term. Uh, Mm -hmm. So even though the findings could be great stuff from great studies could be helpful in some contexts, but it may be different than what you're looking for in terms of, let's say how to be an effective senior manager uh, as a leader, how to lead change over time, not just over 20 minutes. Um, so when you read a study, read an article, how are they operationalizing or defining the term leadership? It's important to pay attention to, but, um, I'm not one to argue. I I do think leadership is different than let's say management. I think it's different than managing yourself. You know, some people say self-leadership to me, when I'm talking about leadership, I'm talking about influencing people towards in, uh, to a, to an organizational goal, usually something they wouldn't do on their own or the same way unless you were there influencing them. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there might be, is is there overlap between the two, between leadership and management? Or Oh, yes, yes, okay. yes. So first of all, someone can be a manager and not a leader because a role doesn't allow them to lead. I mean, they just have the title manager, but maybe they're just managing um, I don't know, a, a, a stack of books or something with no humans interaction. Uh, and then sometimes people aren't in authority roles. They don't have formal authorities, but they're still leaders. They're still influencing people uh, mm-hmm. in the organization towards a vision. Um, so they are separate. But uh, generally, the skill that many managers need to learn 
is leadership because most people who become managers don't get the role because they excelled in leadership. They excelled as individual contributors. So typically, a first leadership position is given to you or offered to you because you are such a hard worker, you're so good at achievement, and you're so good at managing yourself, and you're confident, and people see, oh, you're a future leader. But leading yourself is different than leading others. And uh, working hard is different than leading others. And so an important distinction for people to learn is now you're driving results through others. So many times when I work with new leaders, their first struggle is they still want to do everything themselves. So if you're a high-achieving person, you're used to your success coming from you and only you. And then uh, as a leader, you have to get others, uh, drive results through others and inspire others. And I've, I've worked with many um, high-achieving engineers, for example, that dread so much having to coach people or having to um, drive results through others. And they're such high achievers that they'll end up doing, they'd rather do two, uh, the job of two people than ever sit down and have a coaching perf- uh, for a better performance conversation mm-hmm. or have to get up mm-hmm. and, you know, so, so um, someone could be in a position of management, but not showing leadership. And many times, when managers are stressed, they just retreat to their functional specialty. A common mm-hmm. stress reaction on managers is um, to just focus on what they're good at. So maybe it's doing the jobs, but not not leading. So they'll right. retreat and hide from it. So um, many organizations may have many managers, but they oftentimes are still struggling for ma- with managers who can actually lead and inspire uh, and actually be transformative. Mm-hmm. as leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess, uh, are there different ways of being a leader? Oh, there's so many different ways to be a leader. There's different styles. Uh, there's different approaches. Um, and it's it's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, we talked about, you want to, I know you want to talk about autocratic or democratic or yeah. transformational or transactional. You know, so the more unique leader are the transformational leaders. And those are the leaders who get people to think about problems in a new way or highly charismatic. Uh, They lead through inspiration. They're more rare. Those are the ones, you know, we talk about, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or people like that as transformational leaders. And then you have transactional leaders who are generally leading through exchange, rewards, punishment, management by exception, uh, rules, formal authority. Um, which are very different, um, but it's much harder to find transformational leaders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess, are they, so you've kind of listed, I guess you named four different types. Mm-hmm. Are they all in opposition to each other or is there um, some amount of overlap between the four forms? There's... I'm finding that to be effective, you really have to as- assess the situation. I've worked with many leaders um, who have said things to me like, so I do a lot of f- coaching around 360 feedback. Do you know what 360 feedback is? Where you do a survey. So uh, you, you work with a leader and a, a survey is sent out where they get feedback mm-hmm. from their leader, their boss, um, uh, several other peers, and a large sampling of the direct reports. Mm-hmm. 
and it's all and it's done in and the way direct reports is done in a safe way where you can't tell uh, who gave what rating, and then the the manager gets a report. And I've worked with many managers who say that's interesting. I don't understand why um, my uh, direct reports don't like my delegating here at my other company. They loved how I delegated, but um, it's situational. It's different different cultures, different situations often call for different leadership. Now, people can be authentic and true to their values, but sometimes you have to shift between being a little more autocratic, being a little more democratic. Usually you don't want to go to, to one extreme or the other, but um, or maybe you're an actually transformational person, but maybe a certain situation doesn't quite call for it at the moment. Mm-hmm. So sometimes um, asking yourself what would be most helpful in this situation? What are you trying to create? How are you trying to have a positive impact on the organization today? And so sometimes if people are too wed to, I'm only this type of leader, I'm always democratic, I'm always autocratic, I'm always, um, I don't believe in having a vision. I don't believe in strategic planning. You know, people who just sort of think they can only be one type uh, oftentimes can be ineffective because the type of tasks can be different, the situation can be changed, the emotions can be changed. Certain types of leadership work better when people are stressed or in crisis or an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I'm I'm more of, and we can get more into definitions of democratic versus autocratic in a minute. But if I was trying to evacuate people from a building that was on fire, even though I tend to want to be in a democratic, inclusive leader, it, that may not be the time to take a vote. Yeah. And to ask people what the best way is. You want to get people out quickly because it's an emergency. So there, there are times where um, certain styles of leadership could be, you know, absurd. So you, you need to sort of look at the situation and, and see what's, what's best. Um, and you can still be true to your values and, and the goals of the organization and still adjust your style. So I always like to saying, be firm in principle, but flexible in practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think mm-hmm. to deep dive into, you know, you mentioned that we'll we'll look into what exactly they are. What mm-hmm. what is an autocratic leadership style and what what does it look like? Cuz I think yeah. you can define it, but then you you want to know how it actually manifests. I feel like they can Correct, do things. Yes, and I know many autocratic leaders who don't know they're autocrats. They think they're <laughs> democrats. You know, there's yeah. many leaders who say my door is always open. But never, so um, an autocratic leader essentially is one who uh, allows little or no input from group members or, or honest input. So you have some mm-hmm. leaders who think they're democratic because they allow fake input or they'll mm-hmm. input from the people that that will tell them what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. So you're still an autocrat if you're uh, really controlling the type of impact put you receive. So in autocratic um, leadership organizations, um, you see one or two leaders who control all the decisions and um, nobody else is really empowered. And the way it often looks like to me as a coach, as a consultant, is you go in that organization and you'll hear things like from the top leadership, nothing seems to get done unless I'm here watching over. Or you watch the team talk to the leader and none of the team members are talking to each other 
they're all talking through each other to the leader. They're leader-centric. So in other words, all the communication seems to be directed at the leader. Because the political nature of a effective autocratic organization is the way you um, move up, the way you succeed is to make a positive impression on the leader, nobody else. So you see less creativity, you see less collaboration, um, you see um, uh, major gaps in leadership succession. One thing that I find interesting that creates a lot of work for me as an industrial psychologist is autocratic organizations usually have very few people waiting in the wings ready to take on leadership because the autocrats make all the decisions so the mid-level management doesn't get a lot of experience making decisions. So you tend to see an organization where you have senior leadership saying, gosh, when we retire, we're going to have to hire from the outside. We have no people ready for senior leadership positions. Even And that's in large companies. Even in restaurants, you see in little restaurants, you'll see sometimes the owner not letting anyone near the cash register, not doing anything, um, letting anyone but his or herself do things. So when they... If they're not standing over everything, nothing gets done right. People are too nervous. People don't learn. They don't feel empowered. They become helpless. Um, so that's what you start to see. But um, but also there's some benefits. In, in autocratic organizations, there's often a little more predictability. Uh, employees can predict what will be acceptable, what's going to happen, what the when the leader is serious. They start to learn when the leader says something, what's going to happen? Do they tend to keep their word? They uh, Do they tend, uh, if, will the leadership be offering situations where if you ignore it long enough, it'll go away? You know, you start to learn and predict because all the leadership comes from one or two people. So it makes things very predictable. Um, also, it, it may work in certain cultures. There's many cultures um, that are uncomfortable with overly democratic leaders, not just organizational cultures, but national cultures. Um, so I do a lot of organizational development work. And sometimes organizational development professionals from countries like the United States or Australia, where we're more individualistic and power distance between leaders of ours tends to be low. Um, when we do an intervention or an icebreaker, we treat everyone equally in the room, even though we know certain people are authority figures. But you go to a, a nation with greater power or distance, uh, such as China or, or Russia or South American countries, people may be uncomfortable if you're treating everybody the same and don't necessarily want to give their input or be equal uh, to the to the boss or the senior people in the room. So it may not work. So uh, there, are, there are times where you may need to be more autocratic to be, or to be effective if that's what the culture calls for. However, generally, um, autocratic cultures work against authentic teamwork, work against creativity, um, and and work against, you know, just really helpful collaboration or and, and leadership development in terms of succession development. Because when leadership is too autocratic, the mid-level management does not get the experience having to make decisions that matter. Because they know every decision they make is going to be rethought through by someone above them. So they don't really have to own their decisions. So it's a safety net. And then eventually they just learn to be very passive and, and not sort of that worried about making decisions. They, they're focused more on making sure they're not upsetting the top bosses.
Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it as well. Uh, you know, here mm-hmm. um, at LMSL, we're a global workplace ourselves. So the difference in culture can sometimes change mm-hmm. the way that uh, they need to be guided. I'm sure we're not the only ones. I know post-pandemic, mm-hmm. there's been a lot of more global workplaces as well and interesting mm-hmm. challenges that arise from that, for sure. Yes, yes. And um, um, there's definitely definite differences in workplace cultures and how people are even affected by their boss. So, so for example, we could take things like, um, take autocrat up a notch and make it a, a bullying, tyrannical autocratic boss. Nobody likes working for a tyrant, a bully, someone who humiliates them and teases them. But I tell you, um, employees in Australia, United States are, uh, going to dislike it just like people who in Singapore or China would. Um, however, in the research, it will definitely be more depressing and more upsetting to people from places like uh, Scandinavia, United States, Australia, um, because part of what is your identity, what is your expectation around power distance? So um, even if you're from a, a culture where your work, like an individualistic culture like Australia or United States, your work is often a real central part of your identity. In some other cultures, your actual job is less central to your identity. So therefore, even though if you're in a, if it's not essential to your identity and you have a horrible, tyrannical boss, you may say, well, that's my work. That's my work life. That's not me. Um, my boss is upset with me. But if your work is your identity and you're, you feel like you're always upsetting your boss and, and failing because of that, that's more likely to make you feel depressed or despair Mm -hmm. um, in an individualistic culture like Australia or the United States. Yeah, for sure. So there's, there's a difference between autocratic and, and tyrannical. Correct. So you're, so there are many benevolent dictators. You can be an autocrat and not be a bully. So there's many autocrats who are gentle and sweet. They just make all the decisions. They may do it on a smile with their face. (laughs) And sometimes it is a benevolent thing to be an autocrat. For example, um, sometimes there's the right thing to do, but it may not be the majority opinion. You know, maybe you're leading a a large group of people who think it's okay to treat uh, or be disrespectful to a minority group Uh or to employees of a different gender or to Uh engage in behaviors inappropriate. Sometimes as a leader, you can't say, let's take a vote and say, should we loosen the rules on sexual harassment or something like yeah. that? Yeah, you yeah. know, so in this case, so certain things, you, you need to be an autocrat and say, no, this is not going to be tolerated. So sometimes as a leader, you have to stand up uh, for what's right, even if it may not be um, the majority opinion in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's, that's autocratic leadership. How do you define mm-hmm. democratic leadership and, and what does that look like? Yeah, so democratic leadership is where team members participate actively in the decision-making process, where you, you have an idea, you know, perhaps a, the top leader has an idea, he brings it out to the team and the team gives input and then the decision and program um, after trying to get buy-in from people, is adjusted based on the feedback and the input, the needs and the suggestions of, of many other leaders in the organization. Um, and also in democratic uh, organizations, people generally feel comfortable 
giving feedback and input so that it's the true input and not just what the leader wants to hear. So there's usually opportunities, things like employee surveys, um, where leaders can model democratic leadership. So um, the great leaders of uh, many organizations who take a democratic approach will get feedback and they'll express their gratitude to those who gave feedback and don't make people feel bad for giving feedback and say how they want to change. So people see that their input matters. So there's fake democratic leaders who seek input and then nothing happens with it and they still make the same decision. So people are like, this is just pretend. I'm not giving any input. But the truly more democratic organizations see where input really impacts decision-making and choices and and directions of the organization. Um, And generally in democratic organizations, when people feel like they have some ownership and input, you tend to see a little more commitment a little more buy-in versus just compliance. So compliance, people will do things when the leader's around, but they may not feel committed to it. But when people are part of the process or part of planting that garden, they tend to have more ownership. But don't get me wrong. Sometimes democratic leadership can look messy in organizations. Sometimes democracy is a messy thing, and sometimes things are overly democratic. Um Sometimes an organization thins down a policy so much because it tries to be all things to all people. Or sometimes decisions that aren't that important, that don't need a lot of buy-in, shouldn't take that much time. You know, you're trying to decide, what are you going to serve at the holiday party lunch? You know, do, do you really need to have hours and hours of discussion and input? And I'm worried that some people may be disappointed. Um, so so that 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 can be a challenge. Sometimes meetings just take too long if everything is democratic. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's about picking, you know, where you want to be democratic or, or giving, you know, sort of explaining why some things can be autocratic. Another thing interesting, when you look at a democratic organization or organization that leans on the democratic side of the spectrum in terms of leadership style, um, there's more motivation to build partnerships and collaboration. See, in an autocratic organization, everyone can hate you as long as a boss thinks you're a good person and a good employee, you'll get what you need. But in a democratic organization, you need to influence others uh, to make sure people support your initiative. So there's a lot more of that kind of politicking. People may want to take each other out to lunch to build relationships. People may want to share their ideas in advance of a meeting to make sure they have the buy-in of others. So you'll see that type of political behavior, political campaigning in organizations. Mm-hmm. Universities are examples of very democratic organizations, typically, because uh, it's built into the structure. So you often see faculty wanting to have other faculty on their side. So when there's a vote on a new policy or a new program, getting a program approved, uh, they have allies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a democratic type organization. Mm. And, and I guess just like there's kind of a toxic form of autocratic leadership, um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of manifests within democratic leadership as that mm-hmm. bureaucracy or, or an excess Correct. of bureaucracy. Within an it. excess, yes, or, or people um, mistaking democratic decision-making and indecisive, indecisive, indecisiveness. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then also... Um, Sometimes even the most 
um, authentic people can have difficulty talking about certain um, topics. So it may be hard to have a, a true input if certain people are in the room or they don't want to hurt people's feelings. So that could be uh, a challenge. Um, also, sometimes, um, so so the the sometimes people don't have the information to be make a make valid input. Mm-hmm. So um, and sometimes they do. So generally, leaders uh, thrive by taking a democratic style because if you're hiring right. Uh, you have experts under you who know things better than you do. So if I'm a leader and I have my HR person and my finance person, hopefully they are experts in that topic and they can give me input that I wouldn't know. Or even a hiring decision, a hiring a person is a puzzle and different people could tell you different things they've observed about that person's performance. So that's, that's for the helpful side of democratic. But many times, if you just bring in a large group, and give everybody equal weight, sometimes certain people know nothing about a certain topic and they shouldn't be given equal weight or equal input to a uh, discussion because uh, they don't fully understand. Or maybe certain information is confidential. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're giving input, but they don't have the whole story because they didn't see certain information. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I generally take a democratic style, but I've had to terminate people in organizations, let them go because of let's say they did some very disturbing behavior and are a danger, but you can't just announce that to the company. You have to respect confidentiality of many of these things. And so someone may say, well, why did you get the input of uh, that person's uh, peers and management? How, you know, we like this person and you, you can't usually just send out a company email saying, you know, this person, uh, did these terrible things at work, made these threats, has these problems. Um, so uh, people may want to give input on certain situations if they don't have all the information. Um, but in many situations, the democratic style um, can really lead to better collaboration, better uh, better teamwork and better creativity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I guess Especially that's... with mature followers. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess that's kind of two styles. And you mentioned there's a lot more than just that, a lot more ways to be a leader. But Mm -hmm. I guess to culminate this segment, what is the best way to implement a good leadership style? Because I'm assuming it's not just one. Yeah, you you need to think about and ask yourself – what good are you trying to create and what, how, uh, and, and what do you want to make happen? And then look at the situation and say, how can I meet people part of the way to get them there? So if you only try to be the style you like, um, it's not going to be effective. You know, I remember when I was younger, if my parents were speaking to someone from a different country and it, and, it, and who didn't speak English, they would just start saying, things louder hmm. and it wouldn't help. Mm-hmm. They're doing the same thing, but just in a louder voice rather than recognizing they're not being understood. They keep doing the same thing. Many leaders think that if they're not getting it the first time, they'll just press down harder. But sometimes you have to adjust based on the style. What do people understand? So I, there's a few things you need to look at to adjust your style. What is the ready 
willingness and willingness of the followers. Do the followers want or care about doing a good job? How experienced are they? Um, so it's a very different, you may need to use a more telling style if you're trying to lead people that don't care about the organization or the work. Or maybe you're leading people who care a lot, but they're just very inexperienced and they need your help. There, it may be important for you to be both a, a teacher uh, and a bit of a, a, a general. Or maybe you're leading people who are very capable, but just not confident yet. So there, what you need to do is maybe be more of a coach, a democratic coach, maybe someone sort of helping them uh, generate insights, helping them make a choice, asking them good questions, not telling them what to do, being very democratic and saying, hey, you know, what do you think? How are you feeling? Helping them understand why they're feeling unconfident about their situation. And then finally, if you're managing and leading people who are experts in their field more than you, you know, you're a department chair of an academic department, you're a, uh, a chief in a hospital of surgeons, uh, you're leading people who've worked at the organization for a dozen years, perhaps a more delegating style where you set the, the goals, the big picture, ask people to check in and, and, let, and delegate. And delegating is a very effective style, very democratic, very delegating style. You, uh, here are the goals. You achieve it how you want, as long as you you meet the requirements. Now, if you took a delegating style with people who don't want to be in the organization and don't know what they're doing, it's not going to be effective. And you may even make people very anxious. Mm-hmm. If you take a delegating style with people who aren't confident, they're going to say, I have an absent leader. I need help. But if you take a micromanaging, um, you know, really autocratic style with leading experts in their field and you're telling them exactly how to do their job and what's right and what's wrong and how to make every decision and where to spend every penny, they're going to be feeling very micromanaged and very frustrated and not want to stay if they have other options. So you really have to look at the, the capability and the readiness and the maturity of your followers. And the other thing you need to think about is the type of task. Is it a task that is about innovation and creativity? Um, or is it a pretty mundane task that there's not many ways to do it and it doesn't require a lot of thought? Mm-hmm. That is a different leadership style. And then finally, you need to think about the culture of the organization. So I'm a collaborative, democratic-style leader naturally. Um, but if I'm in a culture or organization where that would seem strange or people wouldn't accept it or feel uncomfortable. Maybe I'd have to adjust a little bit. You know, I wouldn't go completely to the autocratic side, but I just uh, go a little bit more in that direction so that people feel comfortable and also um, are welcoming of the authority. And also so that I can work effectively with the other leaders in the organization. Um, it's, It's very hard to be a democratic leader in an organization where every other leader is a, strict autocrat and the culture doesn't really support that yeah 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 a lot of what you said um kind of just lended to understanding the people that you work with i I think once Mm -hmm. you once you understand them well it makes a lot of those other things easier exactly so the the you know number one understanding the people and also understanding the culture of the company and and their history and 
Um, and then also understanding the type of task, mm-hmm. you know, is it, um, you know, and all sorts of leadership style questions uh, or work questions. It really makes a difference regarding the type of task. So people say, is it, is telecommuting okay? Is working remote okay? Well, once again, um, how remote you can be often the question is how much, how much is spontaneous interaction uh, part of the necessary aspect uh, related to innovation? You know, what is, what is the job? Who are the people? Um, So knowing the people, knowing the culture, knowing the task are all really important ingredients to choosing the appropriate leadership style. Mm, mm, For sure. For sure. I want to now move on, I guess, um, or, move forward with all of that information into our mm-hmm. practice slash habit experiment. Oh, sure. um, I, I, that's a lot of really useful info, but I guess mm-hmm. what, what's something, what's a practice that, that you've done or perhaps that you recommended to other people in your coaching business um, to yeah. improve your leadership skills? Yeah. So two things seem to come up a lot in my practice with coaching. First, I usually use personality assessments. Um, and I really like personality assessments um, that are verifiable in court, that are workplace related, that don't get into psychopathology, um, but ones that help reveal people's what we call their dark side. Like, for example, the, the Hogan personality inventory, which is called the Hogan Development Survey, gets at people's dark side personality traits. These are traits that, will, uh, are, that, that come out under stress. So making leaders aware of their derailers under stress. So it's very easy to say, I'm going to be a democratic leader or I'm going to be a transformational leader. Um, And just like many personal growth growth things, when we're stressed, instead of being our ideal self, our dark side comes out. Uh, And usually there are strengths turned upside down. Maybe you're a very diligent person, but under stress, you're not just diligent, but you're a control freak. Or maybe you're a passionate uh, excited person that can really get people excited around you. But when you're stressed, the excitability becomes volatility and you start screaming and yelling and get easily disappointed and upset. Or maybe, maybe you're a quiet person and a thoughtful person, but when you're stressed, you become so resol- reserved and withdrawn. Do you stop communicating completely? Um, or maybe you're so committed to the organization, so dutiful that, uh, when you're stressed, uh, everything becomes about pleasing your leader. You'll never go to bat for your team. So, um, in other words, making people aware of their triggers under stress and and what they're becoming. And therefore, so the two practices associated with that is once I make leaders more self-aware of their derailing tendencies to teach them uh, why they can be, why those are harmful help them see that it has where it comes up in their work, but also most importantly is helping them manage their stress because if they can keep their stress under control, it makes it much easier for them to um, keep their derailers under control, their dark side under control. Mm -hmm. Um, So helping them figure out how can they best cope with their stressful situation? I mean, for me, sometimes it's simply, taking a deep breath before a meeting, a difficult conversation or closing my eyes and counting backwards by three, 
before I start speaking and so that I can be my best self versus my derailers that could emerge in a stressful conversation. And I often try to encourage leaders to do that, to maybe take a breath or do some sort of practice where they can get back to being their best selves. And if they see that the derailers are coming up, sort of notice, are their muscles tense? Are they stressed? Can they relax just a little bit so they can get back to being the type of leader they want to be, that they're trying to grow to be? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one type of practice. The other practice at the very beginning, I mentioned the book uh, Triggers by Marshall Goldsmith. And in that practice, he has a much more elaborate version. I adapted it a bit. When I work with coach, when I work with coaching clients, I sometimes ask them based on the behavior they're trying to change to ask themselves questions at the end of each workday related to what they're doing. So maybe maybe they want to uh, show more appreciation. Um, and recognition for those that they manage to create a more positive work environment. Maybe they have a reputation for having a negative disposition. So I'll ask them at the end of the day, uh, I want you to rate yourself in the answer to this question. Did I do my best to show appreciation of those who supported me today? So I didn't say, did I show appreciation for those who supported myself today? I'll say, did I do my best? So that way, because maybe there, maybe everyone, you were by yourself all day, so it wasn't possible. Or maybe maybe it was a very difficult day and what you did was your best. So it's not yes or no. It's about the journey. It's about each and every day, did you do your best? Did I do my best to eat healthy today? Did I do my best um, to uh, say something positive to my children today or make them feel good about themselves? Did I do my best to set clear, specific goals in the morning? Mm -hmm. Did I do my best to incorporate some exercise into my day? And at the end of the day, having just a few questions, could be one question, probably about six. Marshall Goldsmith in his books, he does 26 and hires someone to read them to him, but that's a bit much for me. (laughs) But but if I think if people had just a couple of questions, a few questions at the end of each workday related to what they're trying to transform, it makes you maybe want to avoid asking the questions, but it, it really keeps you on, on task and also makes it more fun because if you're only focused on the future outcome and this thing that's going to happen in a few years, it can be overwhelming. You may feel like you're never going to get there. But if you can focus on enjoying and appreciating the small steps along the way, Um, eventually you get there, but also you have a happier existence because each day you're sort of giving yourself permission. Did I do my best? Did I do my best in in that one area? Um, And it's not as focused on the end result, but it's on the journey. And I think that sets you up uh, for a happier life and also for success. So um, did I do my best today at setting clear specific goals? Did I do my best today? at showing appreciation for those who supported me? Did I do my best at listening and staying engaged at Zoom meetings today? Um, And I may say those were horrible meetings. I didn't have opportunities, (laughs) but I still did my best. Mm -hmm. I didn't didn't touch my phone once during the Zoom meeting. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, when you phrase it as did I do my best, it also gives you an opportunity to acknowledge some of the things that maybe made it hard for you to not do it as well as you might have on other days, for example. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's it's also forced you to reflect and not give up. I kind of feel like when people are only just focused on did they achieve the end result by now or they'll never they give up because they say they're never going to get there yeah and we sure. give up and that's why the gyms are open in february after new year's eve because people say okay i didn't lose 10 pounds i failed i give up <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um Oh, are there any challenges uh, with this practice you already mentioned that some people might not want to do it every day Uh, Mm -hmm. What do you feel that people struggle when they're asking themselves these questions? Well, one, actually doing it and and not giving up or um, uh, and not having to face the truth and seeing their report card, knowing that they're going to have bad scores, um, being hard on themselves. Most of the people I work with have had success in their life and maybe it's the first time they're struggling because they were really hard workers. They got to a leadership position and now maybe, maybe they're struggling in terms of adapting to a new CEO, or maybe they're struggling in getting a team to work. And it's really upsetting because they've always done so well in so many things. And so um, they may want to avoid it. Um, You know, many times we want to avoid, avoid facing the hard, uh, the hard truths and just retreat and just say, okay, I'm not going to worry about it or, or just focus on blaming others or say, I don't care anymore about becoming a better leader of this team because I just want to quit the company and it won't matter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's also a great teacher because even if you are going to eventually leave the organization, you'll probably get to your next place more effectively if you're in a better place and not in total despair. So if there's something you feel good about and you're preparing yourself for that, that next role, so you can still develop and uh, for that next role, even if you're completely given up hope at your current organization, Mm. uh, if you're still growing and developing, it'll help you in your next role. And also you'll do a better job at landing that next role because you'll feel better about yourself. And that transmits uh, in interviews and when you're networking and doing other things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess you already mentioned that this is something that you should do at the end of every work day. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking kind of the practical aspect of it, do would you recommend people find a certain time to do it? And if so, what time? You know, uh, how do people find the time within their day to do it? What, Thank what have you, you very recommended? Much. Thank you very much for asking. Um and this comes from another book I mentioned too, uh, by Heath, the uh, uh, switch, how to change when change is hard. And one thing that they talk about is it's much easier to stick to a new ritual if you connect it to something you already do. Mm-hmm. You know, so for example, about 20 years ago, I started a ritual of before every shower, I do my push ups. So I do push ups all the time. So it becomes a ritual too. So push ups and shower, Vogue are always part of my routine. So when you say, should you do it at the end of the day? So it depends what you, do you have a cup of tea every night uh, at a certain time? Well, that could be a time for you to reflect on the question. Do you, um, 
do you have a, a time after you walk the dog? Whatever a certain thing you do at a certain time every night is the best way to incorporate a new habit is when it's connected to an existing habit already. And then you're less likely to forget about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other option, which is more expensive and maybe more scary, would be to have someone call you every night like Marshall mm-hmm. Goldsmith does and asks you, he gets asked those 26 questions that he has and gets scored. Um, but many people don't want to have to pay someone to call them every single night to go through that. But that's an, another option if, if you wanted to, to do that. You know, uh, um, but I'm sure, you know, now with artificial intelligence and all these other things, maybe there's ways to automate it. Maybe. Um, and get it. But uh, but that's, that's uh, some advice I have. Yeah, maybe there's a, a robot accountability friend somewhere out there that you can exactly. help that can help you out. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Um, would you recommend this practice to everyone, or are there perhaps groups of people that um, this might not work for? Well, I recommend it for people who are really committed to incorporating some changes or new habits into their behavior. So, uh, and who who really want to live uh, their best life, who feel like they. Um, want to be uh, the uh, a person they aspire to be. They want to make a change. But yes, if you if you're not committed to that, it wouldn't make sense. So um, you have to really want to be someone who who wants to grow and develop. I I've worked with many mid level managers who say things like, uh, "I know who I am. I'm not going to change," or "You can't go." So it really works best with people who see growth and development as a journey. And most of the best leaders I've ever worked with are people who believe that they can grow and develop, that everything's not fixed. They have that growth mindset where they feel like um, it's not fixed. You know, maybe maybe they were bad at learning foreign languages or maybe they were bad at math, but it doesn't mean that they'll always be that, that they can't learn that, that maybe they just need to, uh, to learn it in a different way. Um, or have a different type of class. So, so people, people with a growth mindset who are dedicated that these type of practices work better for. It's much harder to do personal development practices with people who aren't committed to change or who see themselves in a very fixed manner, who don't uh, believe that anything could change their behavior, mm. um, who don't see that... Um, that they that they can have any control over shaping their environment or who they are. I mean, there's certain things that are out of our control and certain things that are in our control, but but generally it's for people who believe that they can have some impact on their destiny, on their career, on their leadership, on mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, I, I think that's used, uh, really, really useful um, <laughs> to wrap up that segment um there's a lot there that i think our audience can take away and use in their own lives so thank you very much for that well, i might move you. on I, I might move on now to our open mic segment um where i let you have mm. like a mini ted talk for a few minutes about oh. about about whatever you would like was there something you wanted to chat to chat about today? yeah i don't need to have a whole ted talk but i guess we were talking about personal growth and leadership and mm. i'm a uh so when i'm not a leadership coach coach. I'm a dean at a college. And I see so many opportunities for faculty members and even even high school teachers to incorporate some of these principles of personal growth and leadership development 
into their classes without even, even adding much to the curriculum by just the way they ask questions and the way they give feedback. They can shape a growth mindset in their students. They can help their students reflect on their learning and, and, and see that they can grow and develop. So there's so many opportunities for faculty members, for high school teachers, for elementary school teachers to help sort of shape a person so that they're more likely to develop into a better leader or more likely to succeed or be open to personal development because they've uh, a growth mindset was established or the or they had a teacher that got them to reflect on, on what they do. So you have students that went to do, let's say, study abroad, and you mm-hmm. ask them how it was. It was awesome. That's not enough. You want to teach them to reflect what did they learn? Who did they meet? How will this help them? Get them to really reflect on the experience. Get them to learn beyond just what happens in the classroom. When students do poorly on an exam, instead of just having them think, are they good at something or bad at something, Mm -hmm. do they ever reflect on their strategy for how they studied? Perhaps it's not that they're bad at math or bad at learning foreign language. Perhaps the approach they're using is not effective for them. So perhaps they need to change their style. Perhaps they need to change the way they learn. Is it through videos, through group learning? Um, Perhaps they need to calm their anxiety while they're learning. So as, as educators, everything I'm doing with companies to help leaders develop, we could start earlier and help people uh, develop a growth mindset, become more aware of how they learn and be more prone to seek out self-awareness so that they can be the type of person they want and have the type of life they put, hope to have. We have so many opportunities to be the person we hope to be. And hopefully we don't wait till we're on our deathbeds and hopefully it doesn't come to our 90s or 100 to um, to say what kind of, uh, if only I did more of this or I shouldn't have done so much of that, that, that you can change who you are and what kind of life you're having in so many different ways, maybe not every way. But you, as a leader, you can make your organization better than it is. You can have more impact than you're having. You can do better with yourself. Uh, you can be happier um, by taking a mindset um, that's focused on growth, that welcomes self-awareness, that is aligned with your values and, and, and how you're happy. And, and I think teachers and professors can really lay the foundation for that and parents too um, mm-hmm. by the way they give feedback in school by the way they ask questions and by helping students recognize that who they are or how they're doing is not always fixed that it's malleable and changeable and by helping them see uh, that they're learning more than they think they're learning by getting them to reflect on experiences mm-hmm. in a deep manner mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's my mini TED talk. No, I love that. That's so beautifully put. Um, oh, thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us. Um, Stuart, where can our audience find you? Um, well, you can find me at uh, Mercy College on their website. Uh, you could also find me uh, on LinkedIn. 
Um, but I think the easiest way to find me uh, is on, on the Mercy website, or uh, which I think I provided uh, in the bio for the uh, podcast. Yes, yes. It should be in the show notes below so people can mm-hmm. um, check it out uh, in the description or in the notes for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you um, so much for joining me on the show today. I've had such a great time. I feel like I've learned so much just sitting here at the moment. Well, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. Um, And I I wish you the best in this podcast series. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kutti. Thanks for tuning in.